0: Hello everybody and welcome to WTS Pod, What's the Story Podcast 261, 261 episode, my word My name is Danny Murray And I'm Graham Merrigan Graham Merrigan, how are ya? I'm good, how are you? Yeah man, I'm alright, I'm alright, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we did this we we, we we take a few weeks off here and there, in our old age we're looking for more time off, nothing wrong with that Yeah, not absolutely r- nothing wrong with that o- OAP is this is it, yeah, yeah, we are. Um, but yeah, I'm good overall, man. I'm good overall. I'm uh, th- this podcast is is a bit, I'm, I'm conscious of saying like I'm good, I'm good, and good, but also conscious of yeah. what is it's a, ter- a terrifying reality, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean,
1: feeling guilty for feeling good,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get straight to our guest this week, lads, because it's um, it's always brilliant having a chat with Dr. Tom Clown and. Um, security expert, expert uh, retired captain from the Irish Army, um, uh, journalism and media man. He's 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 written extensively about security risks to Ireland and security situations around the world. Um, knows more than a thing or two about a thing or two. And in all the bullshit and bluster that is going on in in the world around the Russia invasion of Ukraine and the war that they're waging innocent people in Ukraine uh, it pays to listen to people who know what they're talking about so that's why we've turned to the definitive expert in Dr. Tom Clonan
1: and our friend Dr. Tom Clonan uh, returns for sort t- of fourth visit I can't, I can't remember Dan you'll help L- me out here I'm,
0: I'm, lo- I'm losing track of myself but, but either way when, when we bring them back this many times it's usually a sign of they're well loved and respected right that's, exactly that's how I see it
2: Tom thanks for joining us how are you I'm good. You gave out to me the last time. <laughs> Why? I, I, I thought you were, I thought I was here to be given out to again. But this is good. It's a good start. Now this is a great start. We want no, you- Do you remember? Do you remember the last time we spoke? I was saying we should have a national pride march for for all of our uh, citizens with disabilities. Are yeah. And you were kind of going. Eh, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> anyway, I can't uh, remember, but I probably did.
0: I know blow hot and cold and all these things, Tom. It depends on what <laughs> meal you catch them in.
1: May, maybe oh. it was the weather. Maybe it was. It was. It was. It was We're just all the bad news. I actually, I can't remember. If you it
0: hadn't it. had his dinner before we recorded, that's it. You won't get that's any good out of them at all if you you Oh, yourself.
2: it's like the Snickers ads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we we welcome uh,
2: Thanks, thanks very much for inviting me back. And it, as always, it's a it's a great pleasure to talk to you. And you always keep me on my toes, so I'm, re- I'm ready. Lovely. <laughs> I have all my notes here. You can't see them. I have all my
1: notes here. <laughs> the the the, the Shannon's vote vote ended today, was it? it? Was the last day to vote
2: today, was it? Well, the the votes have to be in by the thirtieth of March, so really, okay. it's coming to the end uh, of the voting cycle. So, interestingly, now there's seventy thousand registered voters, and only uh, six thousand. 700 have voted. So there are, um, if I get my maths right now, there, there's 63,000 votes that have not, not been returned. Wow. Yeah. I think that's extraordinary. Like, that is the most privileged community in Ireland. I, I'm a member of it, you know, Trinity graduates. We're the most privileged um, and probably the most powerful community in Ireland. Uh, and yet, less than 10% have voted, which is. I'm, that's crazy, isn't it? Is that the lowest turnout in the history of the state? A real possibility. i the turnout like, usually for the, the, the Shannon, for Trinity? Well, like in 2020, during COVID, uh, it was about 15,000. Right. Which, again, is shockingly low. Like That's 50, so 55,000 people that didn't vote. And I keep thinking, like, Finglas, where I'm from originally, has hmm. a population of about 70,000. Same as the Trinity graduates. And if Finglas had three senators, think of what they could achieve for yeah. Fingless, for that community. Absolutely. And I could be wrong now, but I don't think uh, 50 or 63,000 people from Finglas wouldn't bother to vote if they had that opportunity. Like, those votes are very precious. Uh, people aren't exercising the franchise. It's it's a terrible waste. And, like, I would have voted for Shannon Reform in the last... Yeah. It hasn't happened, so we have a situation like this where, to be honest with you, I think it's a scandal. If it turns out that only seven or eight thousand people vote, uh, what a waste of taxpayers' money! Uh, And what a what a it's very disrespectful, I think, to the whole uh, political system. And our you know, votes are something that are very hard fought. Mm. Uh, They're very precious. There are people all around the world who don't have a vote. So to think that the most privileged group in our society either are unable to or are unwilling to cast their votes is, uh, well, it, it, it really means that there's a requirement for reform. So, like, I'm being flippant on this, but
1: is it the privileged are too privileged to vote? Do uh,
2: n- you know, I, I, I think it's because of the system. Which yeah. is outside of the control of Trinity now It's, it's in the legislation it's, it's registered postal votes So generally the votes go to the address That the person was living at when they graduated Okay So that could be their parents' address Or it could be the flat or the apartment Or the digs they were living in Way back when, when they got um, That seems crazy
1: as well, Tom, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so
2: they're, they're going to and, and because it's a registered post if it's if there's nobody there to collect it and sign for it, it gets returned. So even, even if they sent it by Swift Post, you know, you can still track it. There's still a barcode on Swift Post. There's no yeah. cost difference. But at least then somebody wouldn't have to sign for it. But I mean, then people might argue, well, that represents a danger to the democratic process. But look, we all got our COVID certs digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, very important document, I'm sure that we could do uh, voting on and things like this and um, where you have the electorate all around the world, you could, you could do that digitally. Absolutely. We should bring back the electronic voting machines. Yeah. They're probably just, filled up in a
1: warehouse in Sandyford.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. I'd say they're like Pac-Man or, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'd say they're like, they're very old fashioned now. I'd say, but you know, it's just um, like for the, you know, for reasons that I'm running, you know, because of our family situation and other things, mm. it's just kind of frustrating when you uh, see the low, the low turnout.
1: Absolutely. How, yeah, how are you it's... feeling about it, Tom? Like, how are you feeling oh, confident? I haven't
2: confident? a hope of being. <laughs> yeah, I have I haven't a hope of being elected. But you know what? Uh, this is the third uh, attempt, and uh, probably my last attempt. And so, hopefully, third time lucky. But it w- it's extremely unlikely I'll be elected. I think there are some very strong candidates there who have the, the backing of big political parties like the green party or the labor party or Finnegal and the party machine is, is being used there to help get them elected. Um, but f- I, I would say a couple of things about the pro I've, I've learned an awful lot from running in the election. Um, and it's great to be learning new things in your, in your, in your fifties. And um, I, I think we've influenced people by the campaign in terms of the issues around disability and the fundamental human rights of people with with disabilities. Um, um, And people have been very positive and very constructive. And um, so, you know, it's definitely, it has been worth it, irrespective of the outcome. And whoever does win, I'll be knocking on their door. Absolutely. You'll be knocking on my own door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, yeah. What was I going to say to you? Um, the, so is the the Fine Gael... The, who's Fianna Gael's candidate?
2: Well, Hugh, Hugo McNeil would, oh, be, yeah. would be the preferred candidate yeah. of, of that party. And, and Underwoods. Yeah, and Hugo's a very, he's a very nice man. He's a very good candidate. He's got a great... Uh, Track record, you know, in, in fighting for causes, you know, when he was a rugby player, he 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 refused to play in South Africa, mm-hmm. and Canary Wharf bombing, you know, he set up a special uh, rugby sort of a test match in London, in the interest of reconciliation and peace. So he's been a good ambassador for Ireland. He's been a good worker for peace. But I, I just think though that the, the university senators need to be 100 independent, non-party. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. For example, when 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 Ivana Bachik was the Labour senator for Trinity, um, mm-hmm. we had the crash and austerity between 2011 and 2015. Um, Ivana Bacic as as the Trinity University Senator voted for every single cut to disability supports and services, to the respite carers grant, to respite hours. So on the one hand, she did a lot of talking about equality. But if you look at her actions in the Senate, she just voted with the Labour Party as part of the coalition uh, and and hurt the most vulnerable citizens yeah. in Irish society. And actually, to be honest with you, that's the reason why I decided to run. Yeah, because as a parent and a carer, as Owen was then as a child, I just thought, how, how can any senator vote for those things and, you know, purport to be. A univer- like I believe our university senators are there to hold the government to account and also to hold our universities to account to hold Trinity to account in terms of you know its activities and how it how it works and operates. But um anyway
0: it's uh, it, it, that's the reason it's, why. But it's it's mad though because uh, I I I've opened the NUI ones but like you were saying there I think I it must be, I didn't vote, I think 2020 was the last one anyway, I could be wrong there. I think yes, it was, sir, it was the I, last one. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I, I didn't vote in it purely because I had moved house, and as you were saying, so well, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't have been in favour of abolishing the Shannon, but certainly reform is needed. And I think the point you were making around that piece in Finglas, can you imagine what, you know, three seats could do for the people of Finglas? that goes across so many areas of this country that if they had representation in the Shannon, um, and it wasn't this kind of elite level of people having access to things, you could make real change. And a lot of stuff you've campaigned on is the kind of change we need to see coming from the upper house. Yeah, well, I mean, look,
2: we, we live in a society where, uh, as as we speak, right, um, as a single person, if you want to buy... A, a, a one-bedroom apartment or a home in Dublin, you have to be in the top 3% of earners in the European Union. As a couple, you have to be in the top 5% of earners. So 95% of Irish citizens are excluded from the possibility of owning their own home. And shelter and having a home and a roof over your head is listed as one of the fundamental human rights in the UN Charter of Human Rights. And our society cannot provide that. That is the very definition of a dysfunctional society. Mm. And apart from that, then, when you think about um, uh, persons who, who need uh, supported accommodation or accessible accommodation, that's, that's impossible. So, for example, Owen, when he turned 18, my son Owen, who's a wheelchair user and has a neuromuscular disease, um, we, we put him on the housing list, or he, he applied himself for the, the housing list, Leary, wrapped down. Mm. And the waiting list for him is about 18 years Jesus 18 years Now, if something happens to me uh, As his primary care Then what Owen would be looking at Would be going into a nursing home So the, these are the reasons why I want to get into the Senate Or get into mm. houses to Like we have to fix these things A nursing home with, with, with old age pensioners Pardon? A nursing
1: home, like, as in all yeah. yeah, yeah, the really, Yeah, at really.
2: the moment, at the moment, there are approximately 2,000 young people with disabilities living in nursing homes in in the greater Dublin area. And some of these are people with acquired brain injuries. Some of them are people who's... Very often what happens is parents die and they go into crisis and the HSE... And the local authorities have no housing. Like they don't, like there's, uh, a, we have a huge homeless and, and housing problem. Um, so they end up being uh, put into, into that environment, which is completely inappropriate. I mean, you can't live a fully um, actualized, happy, meaningful life in in that scenario. I mean, so these are the things. No dignity there or nothing like that. No, and again, look. I mean, I've been saying this for, for years now, if you said to somebody, you know, you 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 mu- you have to live in a nursing home, and um, if that happened to the members of the LGBTI community, or on the basis of ethnicity or religion or sexual orientation, the whole country would be up in arms, and quite rightly so. But for some reason, um, as it applies to people with disabilities. There's a, a, almost like a tolerance of it, you know. There's a there's a deafening silence on it, and and that's why, you know. Whilst I do have huge respect for my competitors who are running for the Senate, you know what? How many of them will be prepared to make an almighty racket about these issues? Because that's what I want to do. Um, and you know, I'm not, inter- I'm not interested in becoming a TD or becoming, um, you know, my, my only reason is to get into Leinster House and make that noise and to vote against every single piece of legislation that empowers vulture funds or empowers, uh, you know, um, cuckoo funds or anything like that. We, you know, we, we need to build houses like we did in the 70s and the 60s when we hadn't a pot to, yeah. <laughs>
1: in Absolutely, yeah. you know like
2: so we just there's some dysfunctional things there uh, so it's not rocket science but like i was saying to you what is the point of having a digital economy 30 percent of europe's data in 54 data centers around the country what's the point of having shiny big um industries pharma tech if our citizens cannot aspire to have their own home because if you can't aspire to have your own home then you can't make decisions about like, well, will I have kids or, you know, where, where do the, the big neoliberal uh, sort of uh, behemoths have come up with this way of this design for living in Ireland? Where do they think that their next generation of consumers are going to come from? Like we have to, there has to be a place for people to live. So I think the economy probably has been fixed to some extent. Now we have to fix our, our society. Mm. revolves around things like health, access to education, access to housing. And we, we, need, we, we need more voices like that in the Senate. We don't need the same old Labour Party, Green Party, um, Fine Gael. <laughs> we don't need people like that in the Senate, especially on the university panels. And that is not to be critical of the individuals. It's just that by virtue of the fact that they're members of political parties, they will have to follow the party whip. Yeah. In fact, I know that uh, at least one of those candidates had to get permission from the party to run. You know, that's not a good start.
1: No, it's not a good start at all. I
2: mean, you'd be an independent if you, if you had to look for permission to run in the first place. But anyway, of course, I had to ask permission to from the boss.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, not, a part, that's yeah. not a party political thing. That's yeah. just more of like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I just um, do what I'm told. <laughs> you, you've you've been writing brilliant articles recently, um, in, and informing people in regards to uh, the invasion, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Um, where are we with that now, Tom? Like, is is there, like, is did Putin think he'd be in here, in there, for this long?
2: Oh, no, no way! I mean, I mean, this is the most extraordinary story. Um, so I've been writing about this for some months. And when the invasion started, uh, Putin had he had concentrated up to one hundred and seventy thousand troops on the border with Ukraine. Jesus, were a particular type of troops. They were um, mechanized infantry, uh, armoured divisions, and tank big big tank formations. And they were all designed, if you were to design an invasion force, that's what it would consist of. It's like the cavalry. So these are all designed to be fast-moving, cover ground very, very quickly, like, a, like shock troops. It would be a lightning invasion. So on the 24th of February, when the Russians rolled across their start lines and went into Ukraine, I was writing in the journal and saying in interviews on RTE that this was going to be a very fast-moving and brutal conflict. Now, I got one bit right. Um, It has been brutal and will get more brutal, but it has not been fast-moving. And the whole world, the the military and intelligence and defence community are going to be writing about this for, for decades. It's extraordinary how spectacularly the Russians have failed. Really? To take ground. So they're... They've been in Ukraine for a month, a whole month of combat, with troops who had already been concentrated on the start line for some of them since December. Mm. So these same troops have been in the field now for months. They've only taken Kherson. Mariupol will probably fall, but only after they've destroyed it. Um, And that column moving down from Belarus and, and the Russian border to Kiev that column has been moving for 20, 24, 25 days, and it has only travelled 200 kilometres. Now... Yeah, and this is that da- just because of Ukrainian resistance then, is and it? The, yeah, and this is down the E95 motorway. Like, they're moving something like three or four miles a day in mechanised, state-of-the-art vehicles that are designed to go quickly. Now, the average adult male or female... Not not fit, just the average adult male or female can walk four miles in an hour. Like you, you, you could you could have walked from Moscow to Kiev in the length of time that it has taken them to to move their armor. So that is a spectacularly slow moving, um, stalled invasion, and we know that um, the Ukrainian resistance, the Ukrainian military. Supplied by weapons from the West, you know, um, the new generation, state-of-the-art, light anti-tank weapons. These are shoulder-fired weapons. And you fire and forget. They lock onto the target. They have now been proven on the battlefield that Russia's biggest tanks with their most advanced armor and anti-missile systems and reactive armor systems they're extremely vulnerable to these. So one guy or a girl with a uh, a light anti-tank weapon you know which costs I don't know they're made in Belfast actually in the short what used to be the shorts missile factory. Um so basically for 2000 euro or 5000 euro whatever it costs you you're taking out a tank that costs millions uh and the crew which you know young young russian soldiers uh, you know, in a split second. So um, the Ukrainian military have been supplied with tens of thousands of these light anti-tank weapons. And it would appear to be the case that they've targeted the armor, they've targeted the uh, the petrol tankers, mm-hmm. the logistics and supplies. So for a, a combination of reasons, the resistance, the use of Western weapons, uh, which has exposed the vulnerability of the ground element of the Russians, uh, so the, the Russians are in trouble in terms of their ground forces, but but that is not does that doesn't mean that Ukraine has won the war. But what it does mean is that Putin and the Kremlin are now running out of military options. So after a month, you know, failed to take Kiev, they've failed to take uh, Kharkiv or Sumy, so they're going to get frustrated. They're going to get angry. So being denied a conventional military victory they're now resorting to targeting the civilian population by kettling them in to those cities refusing to let them leave on protected evacuation corridors by opening fire on people who leave through agreed evacuation corridors so they're using the human the, the civilian population as a kind of a leverage denied the conventional ground victory that they hope to get very quickly like within a week are now targeting that population, starving them, cutting off the water supplies, the electricity, the food, in an attempt by by, by cruelty and force majeure to, to get a surrender from those cities' mayors. And in addition, because their ground troops aren't doing so well, uh, they're increasingly relying on their air force and their missiles to attack targets in, in those cities. So To put that in context, the the Russians have a lot of um, ballistic missiles, like the cruise missiles that the West used, like NATO used in Afghanistan, like Tomahawk cruise missiles. The the Russians have thousands of those. Uh, One variant is called Caliber, and it has a warhead of 500 kilograms of high explosives. Now, to put that in context, 500 kilograms is is a half a tonne. If you get a cigarette packet size of high explosives, I don't know how much that would weigh, maybe 50 or 60 grams. And if you put that under someone's car and detonated it, uh, you wouldn't recognise the car after the explosion. You'd have to send it for a forensic examination to even determine what make of car it was. That's the explosive power of, of HE or plastic explosives, right? So can you imagine what 500 kilograms of that will do? So when you see pictures from Ukraine of an entire apartment block that has been destroyed in a missile strike, that's what they're doing. They're sending that amount of high explosives into built-up civilian areas, which is contrary to the Geneva Conventions, uh, which forbids an attacking army from firing on civilian objects or civilian targets. And if they do so, it's referred to in the Geneva Conventions as willful and wanton killing. So that's what the Kremlin have resorted to now. Yeah. Uh, And as the Russians become more and more frustrated by these weapons being supplied from the West, they will begin to target further and further to the West themselves. So they've already hit Lviv and they'll start to hit the border crossings with Poland, probably Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, because... The only way to get weapons from Europe into Ukraine is over those land borders because mm. the airspace is dominated by Russian, Russian Air Force. So, so the risk of escalation in this conflict is, is, is very high. Yeah. I'm kind of hoping that somehow um, Putin or those in his inner circle that empower him and support him, that they'll see that this thing is going nowhere. But, was, but
1: but if they see that it's going nowhere, and as you said, you didn't expect nobody in 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 kind of your framework didn't realize that this was going to go on for as long as it did. Like he's not gonna he's not gonna retreat. He want like he wants his ego massaged here, won't he? Yeah.
2: Well, How'd he do that. Well, the original estimate of the situation was that he had enough troops to secure Luhansk and Donetsk the Donbass mm. region. They had declared themselves as independent republics and he sent in peacekeepers, if so-called peacekeepers. And that was his most powerful moment. He had enough troops and equipment to do that, to hold, to consolidate that grab, if you like, and create a buffer zone between Russia and Ukraine. Um, and they also had enough, maybe, to do this land corridor that they're trying to create between Mariupol through up towards uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, Mm. which would be a land corridor from the Crimean Peninsula up into the Donbass and into Russia. They probably had enough stuff to do that. And if they had left it at that, the world would probably, you know, shake their fist at the Kremlin and there would have been some sanctions and Putin could have said, well, look, you know, I've achieved our strategic military objective. But instead of that, he's decided, right, I'm going to take... The whole of Ukraine or half of Ukraine, which is impossible. You, you cannot occupy a country of 45 million people. And here's, here's an interesting comparison. The population of Ukraine is about 40 million, give or take. The population of Afghanistan is about 40 million, give or take. There you go. The United States and NATO could not occupy that country. And after 20 years... They, they were, you know, they literally ran out of there. They flew out of there up until the 31st of August. You know, chaotic. Yeah. Iraq it's... has a population of about 40 million people. The, the West could not occupy. They were able to destroy Saddam Hussein's regime mm-hmm. and they were able to wreck the place, but they could never occupy it. They were never safe outside the green, the green zone. They failed. And but Putin benefited from both of those failed occupation attempts because Russia is now the biggest player along with China in Central Asia after NATO left Afghanistan. And Russia is a power broker in the Middle East with Iran after, you know, the United States and our allies have departed that region. So why did Putin, you know, having benefited from failed attempts to do this, why did he decide, you know what, I'm going to repeat the mistakes of my enemies and try to hold 45 million people at gunpoint, which we know you can't do. My my guess is that uh, Putin is now in some kind of a bubble in the in in the Kremlin where he's not hearing criticism, even the most constructive and realistic criticism. So there have to be people around him who, at some point, are going to realise. This war is not good for Russia, it's not good for the Russian people, it's not good for Ukraine, it serves no purpose. And it has not divided or weakened NATO or the European Union. On the contrary, it has made the Union
0: more cohesive. It's uh, given NATO something to almost unite over, which it probably lacked for quite some time, some would argue. Uh, the, the, the Trump administration undermined
2: that, but now you've got... Mm. 100,000 troops, NATO troops, coalescing in the central European states up along the borders with, with Ukraine. So the whole, the whole thing is a, is a disaster. But my fear would be that if Russia hits targets on those border crossings to prevent the supply of weapons, and if he accidentally or deliberately hits Polish border forces, for example, or Polish troops, then that's an attack on NATO. And yeah. then uh, we have a, a war, a de facto war between Russia and NATO. And that's the kind of yeah. thing. We...
1: And so what, what would we see in that situation? Would we see NATO attacking land in,
2: in Russia? Would we see yeah. NATO attacking yeah. Moscow? You'd see, a, you'd see a bright flash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like a photograph. And then that would, no, no I'm, it, it would be apocalyptic. I mean, I think, so we know that Russia's ground forces aren't great
0: Mm.
2: they're not capable of combined arms operations so if there was an exchange between nato and russia it would be air attacks but most likely um intercontinental ballistic missiles and they would probably start off with conventional ones and you know they russia with even those short-range cruise missiles could hit uh cities like krakow they could hit places in the in Slovakia, Bratislava, Warsaw. But, I mean, this is unthinkable. Yeah, Uh, Vilnius. But in response to that, you know, Russian cities like Rostov-on-Don would be targeted, and then it's only a matter of time. And Putin threatened this. On the 24th of February, he said, if the West interferes with our operations in Ukraine, we will use... Uh, a response that has not been seen before in human history. And then on the 28th of February, he put his nuclear forces on what he calls special alert. Yeah. So he he has introduced already into the scenario the, the prospect of a nuclear exchange. So you've even, got- even the most modest tactical nuclear weapon, if it was fired at a European city, would result in the deaths of millions of people because the the even the smallest tactical nuclear weapons they have now are hundreds of times more powerful than the atomic bombs you would have read about in nagasaki or hiroshima mm. and contaminate huge areas of europe for hundreds and hundreds of years they'd be uninhabitable it would be a human catastrophe a climate catastrophe so we have to do everything in our power to stop us getting to that point
0: it's it, it look obviously it's a, it's a very 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 serious situation and it's it's one which I think people are are frightened. People are scared. They're they're trying to understand what's happening. And as you said there, Tom, Putin is more than likely in this bubble um, where he's kind of being told certain things that 100 percent don't reflect the truth. And if we can kind of get you to put on the, in the 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 cap you wear when you're when you're talking to journalism students about the importance of kind of truth and media and that kind of thing. You, you look at what's going on in Russia and, you know, a couple of days ago, uh, Luzhniki Stadium in Moscow was packed to the gills with this Trump-esque propaganda show where Putin came out and had it, you know, he, he was speaking and if the TV pictures were out to the go, boy, massive support from thousands of people there, you know, state media in Russia is infamous. All the independent TV and radio has been shut down protesters are are being arrested hand over fist but but then there seems to be this big large chunk of russian people who believe everything that comes out of the kremlin so how how do people kind of look at it and say well what side is the truth and what side is the the spin
2: yeah it's very it's very difficult for for ordinary russians to access uh, information in, in the way that we can but um I mean, I've always felt that, you know, there's propaganda on all sides. So there's propaganda on the NATO side as well. Um, so you have to kind of make up your own mind and and think about the evidence before your eyes. So as we were saying, last week I was in Budapest. And I was working there for a couple of days last week. Um, When I got to the airport, I mean, lots of Irish people will have been to the airport and will have been to Budapest for, you know, a weekend break or a midweek break. And... Um, So what struck me, first of all, when I got into the airport was when you go out into the arrivals area, there were lots and lots of Ukrainian family groups sitting around, big suitcases, you know, looking at all the departure signs. I went outside then to get a a bus into town and all the airport car parks were full of minibuses and buses with Ukrainian people getting in and out of them the same in, in town and in, in, in Budapest city center, the train stations packed with Ukrainians out in the streets again with like suitcases, children, cat carriers, mm. you know, pets. So for me, that's evidence. I can see with my own eyes. Yeah. That millions of people on the move. And why are they on the move? They're running for their lives and they're running this way. They're not running to Russia. So, Whilst there is propaganda on all sides, it's clear from what's happening that you know Russian forces are in breach of the Geneva Conventions with regard to the targeting of built-up areas and towns and cities. Um, What I'm saying to the journalism students is: look, uh, one of the things about war and conflict that that I think is very important, like when when you have a journalist who specialises in agriculture, Mm. you expect them to know the difference between a cow and a bull. A a journalist that specialises in fashion, you would expect them to know the difference between Prada and Gucci. Sport, you know, they'll know all about the difference between cricket and rugby or, you know, they're experts. But a lot of war reporting, I'm sorry to say, is carried out by people who have no expertise and who are adrenaline junkies and who stay in hotels in cities very often <laughs> not actually close to the front line. Some of them do, and some of them pay a very high price for that. But I'm hearing report after report after report coming out from Ukraine um, by US and UK correspondents who, who who kind of describe things. You know, you know. I've seen today at a checkpoint, I saw it, but they have no way of contextualising it or saying What's the difference between an offensive or a defensive operation? What's legal? What's illegal? Um, and I think there's a reliance in Irish media uh, and our state broadcaster, particularly on mm. talking heads from so-called think tanks in the UK and the US that, are, that have a, a really clear political agenda. They're not independent, objective reporters. And also I've heard a lot of analysis here that is simply inaccurate or wide of the mark. <clears throat> so what I would say to journalists, you know, educate yourself and and try and find out, you know, w- what the terms mean, you know, acquaint yourself with international law. There are very simple textbooks for journalists that actually be- have been written for journalists by international law experts, you know, explaining what's legal, what's illegal, what constitutes yeah. crime. And, and that would, you know, get rid of some of the... The, the doubt in people's minds about what should we do next? Like, we have to stand with Ukraine. This mm. isn't, isn't just a battle for Ukraine. It's a battle for uh, European values. Do you want mm. to live in a world where it's dominated by strong men like Putin? Or do mm. you want to live in a world where we give out our, our politicians all the time, but we can get rid of them <laughs> every five years, you know? are, are
0: we are, are, are we a little bit paying the price here for a, a couple of years ago, uh, when, when Barack Obama was in the White House and he said the use of chemical weapons in Syria is an absolute red line. Chemical weapons were then used and it was kind of like, oh no, and a wag of a finger and a shake of a fist and that kind of thing. But, but nothing really happened. Was, Putin obviously, you know, in Russia and uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, bedfellows. Like, as Putin looked at that and kind of went, all right then, there, there, there's something I can take away from this and I can be a bad bastard and nothing's going to happen to me.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, again,
0: people like me, and I, I've been given out there saying people should know what they're talking
2: about. Mm. But um, The the Obama administration were outmaneuvered to some extent by Sergei Lavrov in, yeah. in relation to the incident. Uh, but we should have known, we should have seen the warning signals when the Kremlin were prepared to use uh, radioactive Poisoning to kill, I think is Litvinenko. Yeah, Alexander Litvinenko. Yeah, that was terrible. Yeah, in the UK, and they were also prepared to use nerve agents indiscriminately in the UK. You know, and the
0: the Salisbury poisons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: So, uh, so the writing was on the wall then. Up to, you know, at the time of the Litvinenko uh, murder, that here is a leader who's prepared to use mass destruction indiscriminately against a country that is a member of NATO. And there was no, no real consequences for him, personally. So what should have been the consequences? Or what could have been? Like, what, what can you do?
1: And what could, have, what could Britain have done in that case?
2: Well, I mean, you know, the, our hands are tied in the West because we follow a rules-oriented system. Um, well, for mo- most of the time. Um and you're dealing with somebody who is um I would say now based on what we're seeing unfolding in Ukraine who's who's disinhibited, who's reckless, um, who's but I, I think we've reached a point now where that you know we have no choice. And if chemical weapons are used in Ukraine, and I hope not, mm. then that's it's like the moment that Archduke Ferdinand was. Assassinated, or it's like the moment where when the Reichstag was burnt down, it's going, yeah. to, it's going to be a turning point, and it's not going to be it, it's going to be very difficult for Europe, and it's going to change Europe from, from an Irish so, perspective. We've time. No, we've no choice, though. We have to, we have
0: to, the, the guy isn't going to stop now, yeah. Well, that's a he, it's it's that old thing. He's, he's he's weighed so far into the water that you know to turn back would be just as tedious as to keep going, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He's um it's hard to see even like when I say a win here, I, I, I realize it's not a term that kind of sits well with any kind of war, but like, what what could a win actually mean for Putin? Even if he, if he manages to take Ukraine. And as you said earlier, can't occupy the place. Can't, he doesn't have the resource, doesn't have the power. So well, well, what, you, what does you, a win ultimately look like for the guy well, in the long term? To,
2: to find out what a win looks like, you have to look into the recent past. So in 24, 2008, Hmm. the Russians invaded Georgia. Uh, Again, they used about 150,000 troops. They used the mechanized armor tank formations. And they they completed that invasion of Georgia in 10 days. They turned the whole thing around in 10 days. And when it was over, they kept one-fifth of Georgia's territory Hmm. as a buffer zone. And this really bolstered Vladimir Putin's credibility as a great leader, as a strong man, restored Russia's glory. In, in the case of Ukraine, if you want to be really cynical and talk about it in terms of real politics, if he had gone in and out in 10 days and managed to secure about one-fifth of Georgia's territory, i.e. the Donbass and this yeah. land corridor down to Crimea, well, that, that's what a victory would have looked like. But unfortunately, he extended his... He wanted to kill Zelensky, essentially, yeah. I think he found him very offensive, very provocative. Uh, And Vladimir Putin, it would appear, has a very fragile ego. He's got very brittle ambitions. And before we get to the next level, which will stop the war, but at a catastrophic price for Europe, before we get to that level, if if we could stop this war in the meantime, if we could de-escalate, if there was a way that Putin could be persuaded to take a pause... And I'm thinking like if, if, if there was some issue around the nuclear power stations where mm. there was the threat of a, another Chernobyl, which would be as toxic for Russia as it would for everybody else, that Putin might say, you know what, I'm a reasonable man. And in the interests of, you know, humanity, I'm going to take a pause so that we can deal with this situation. So there has to be some kind of safe face-saving face moment for Putin or else the people around him have to move him aside. And I would love to see him after such a move at some point in the Hague answering war crimes against humanity. Um, But the alternative is that he kills so many people that he feels he's proven a point that, you know, the bear, the Russian bear really does have claws. And I, I, I hate even using the word Russia because this isn't Russia. This is, Putin and his kleptocracy and the people yeah. who were enabled and benefited by him—the ordinary Russian people—are wonder, They're wonderful people, and this is just
0: tragedy, but principally for Ukrainians. They're in price when, when you when you said about them potentially being moved aside, like you you mentioned Sergei Lavrov earlier. You know Dmitry Medvedev has had a stint in in the hot seat, albeit very much in a popper format when Putin. Uh, wasn't uh president for a while there, I think it was 2012 or whatever. Like, it, <sighs> there's no political opposition Opposition in Russia. There's no is is there any way of are we relying on the old guard to essentially look at this and have a change of heart and say we have to move them aside, or is there any other way for them to be moved aside peacefully? Oh, well, the way it works in Russia, I mean, like Navalny
2: is the popular hmm. opposition, and he's in prison now for, for nine years. Having already served, or I think he was already sentenced to two years. And, to Detroit, two years and Detroit,
1: and then,
2: and then he yeah, sentenced them yesterday. The and
0: Detroit, to poison him as well. Like there last yeah, year or two so, yeah.
2: so I, 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 and like the demonstrations in the streets, these are very, very brave people. But whatever, if there was to be regime change, it has to come from that inner circle of people who've, who who empower him and enable him. And to be honest with you, I've no no idea who might emerge from the woodwork. Mm. Putin himself came out of nowhere. Yeah. Like he was a major in the KGB. He was in the right place at the right time. Well, the wrong place at the wrong <laughs> yeah. time. And he managed to consolidate his power and hold his grip on power. But that's all built on this kleptocracy of bribes and paying people. But there's the oligarchs, then there's the security and military securocracy of, I think I've heard it called, that might be the group that say, we can't deliver, on your ambition we just can't Mm. the russians love their children just as much as we do and they're as terrified of the prospect of nuclear exchange as we are they are yeah more frightened because it's not it's not clear that their technology will actually work in the way that they think it will given the evidence of what's just happened on the ground so i think at a certain point within that group of people they'll say we cannot deliver on this anymore No, we're not going to nuke a Polish city because we want to continue to, you know, there's no point being the winners if the world is destroyed. I was going
1: to say that to you, like you were talking, you know, if if a border town is hit accidentally or whatever, that you could be looking at uh, uh, apocalyptic (laughs) apocalyptic times. But like surely Putin doesn't want that. Surely he wants to live in his mansions and his yachts and, you know, he wants to enjoy all that. So what, well, what is, what do you see? You know, what do you really see happening here? Like,
2: well, I, I think he's nihilistic. He's grandiose. He's got delusions of power. He, he, I'd say he lives a very, very narrow life. I don't think he enjoys his yachts or his helicopter, or his planes. I would say he sleeps with a gun under his pillow. I'd say he knows he hasn't got long left.
1: Really? In yeah. terms of In terms of long left In terms of power Like being in power Yeah his
2: life I mean he's He's 70, 70. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, You know he, Like he He's not the kind of guy now Who can retire And go to Nice or Monaco And you know Play in the casino <laughs> Like he, so he He's going out All guns blazing then Well that's That's the risk That he, he might want to go out With a bank I mean look yeah. I'm a psychologist Or a psychiatrist But If you look at the history of uh, authoritarian dictatorial people like him, you know they get to a point where they start to become ever more paranoid because he knows he's coming to the end. So the trick is uh, can can this insane war, this criminal war, can it be brought to a halt in a way that doesn't cause the destruction of millions and millions of lives if we can if we can preempt that in some way and hopefully there are people in Russia, I'm sure there are people in Russia
0: who are thinking about this. People
2: yeah. who can make that change.
0: Hopefully, from an Irish perspective, Tom should. The, the, as I said earlier, the, you know, with the, the, the border area be hit with Poland or uh, Slovakia or one of those, and suddenly NATO find themselves going into a conflict, or the EU suddenly find themselves with very very tough questions to answer. A lot has been made of this kind of Irish neutrality. Uh, conversation over the last couple of weeks and, uh, you know, I've heard different things from different politicians and I've heard different things said around, you know, militarily neutral political, sorry, militarily neutral but politically we're not at at what point do, does Ireland have to kind of go, oh, okay well, what, what's under our under Well, I'll answer that as, as,
2: as quickly and as simply as I can. Hmm. Um, NATO does not want to declare war on Russia Yeah, because that's World War Three. And that's why they won't do the no-fly zone, because to have a no-fly zone, the first thing you'd have to do is destroy Russia's integrated air defence systems. So the first thing you'd have to do is have a series of airstrikes and missile strikes from NATO on targets in Belarus and inside Russia. So NATO would declare war in Russia, World War III. NATO doesn't want to do that. But if Russia hits a European border area or people or a city or a town, then Russia has started World War III and all bets are off. NATO will respond. The European Union will respond and Ireland, whether we like it or not, will be part of that, just as we were in World War II. We might be militarily neutral, but we will politically support the defence of Europe. And anyway, Ireland can't contribute militarily in such a scenario because our defence forces are you know, they're non existent. They're, well, they're irrelevant, really. Mm. They don't have the skill sets or the, the kind of experience to be part of a joint effort like that. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the thing that, you know, that's the nightmare scenario that we have to try and avoid. But in relation to our, our, our neutrality, uh, we don't have to be a member of a military alliance. And that's one of the things I've been nervous about in in the discussion around Ukraine. Some politicians saying that we should join NATO or we should join a European uh, military alliance. No, we shouldn't. Because over the last 30 or 40 years, we have contributed to NATO operations. We have contributed, like in in Afghanistan, in Kosovo. We have contributed to uh, European Union military operations in Chad, Central African Republic. So we can pe- play our part and contribute, uh, you know, when situations like this arise. But we do it at a time of our choosing, and not as part of a military alliance. Because at the moment, Ireland has a little voice. But as soon as we join a military alliance, we will disappear because we will so- suddenly then become not point not 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 one percent of the military capability of something that will be led by Germany
0: and the United States or. Mm. So, you know, we need to keep our sovereignty. It's, it's, I'm conscious of time, and we're probably opening up cans of worms with with kind of these questions that can't really be answered uh, in a meaningful way in in a short space of time. But, uh, like, it seems to, and I'm obviously, I've no real knowledge or experience in the Irish Defence Forces, but it seems like respected and everything with all the peacekeeping stuff and whatnot. But a a great example of one of our, our problems was there recently when you know when I've seen the jokes and whatever it was the Irish fishermen who defeated the, the Russian navy or whatever. It's it, it, like does that open up the question to right, we, we you know the, the modern world requires us to start looking at actually investing more in our defense forces and our capabilities. Or are we just too small that that we'd be never in a position to be able to defend ourselves even with the investment? I uh,
2: know we, we need we should, we should. Invest in our defence forces, and the first thing we should do is pay them properly. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's yeah. You know, they're less than earning less than the minimum wage, and to be a neutral state, we have to be able to defend ourselves. And we're the only state in the European Union that can't control or monitor its airspace. We can't control or monitor the maritime space, which is going to be super important in the future. We have two hundred and twenty million acres of ocean, and that's where all the wave and wind energy is going to come from. Ireland owns one-fifth of Europe's waters. It's ours. It's our exclusive mm. economic zone. And, you know, we see now the problems with reliance on Russian gas and oil. Ireland could produce, we could become world leaders in the production of wind and wave energy. Uh, but to do that, we have to be able to patrol it, secure it, mind it. So we need to invest in our Navy to do that. And our army... Uh, you know, I was saying earlier, they don't have the skill sets. I don't mean that militarily. I just mean in terms of scale, mm. because in, the, in any war between NATO and uh, Russia, and I hope it doesn't happen. You know, you're talking about divisions, army group levels, Irish uh, tactical operations. Really, I'd say the maximum we could do it at is battalion strength. And that's, that's not a criticism of the army. It's just a, a fact in terms of scale. And we've done more than peacekeeping in the last 20 years. We've done a lot of peace enforcement. Um, but I suppose I'll finish out in this. Like, as an army officer, I experienced conflict mm-hmm. in Lebanon during Operation Grapes of Wrath, where the civilian population were targeted by the Israelis in airstrikes, helicopter gunship attacks, artillery bombardments on built-up towns and villages. And I've seen at first hand what happens to people in that environment. The killing of children, yeah, like what's happening in Ukraine. And nobody who's seen that or who's been there would say anything other than let's try to de-escalate and and let's not join a military alliance. Let's not send our children into that kind of a space. Let's let's let Ireland be a force for peace in the world. It's worth it.
0: Absolutely. 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 Here, here, yeah. Yeah, uh, Tom. It's it's always a pleasure chatting to you, and uh, the the knowledge and experience you bring through these conversations, uh, certainly a lot more than me and Merle can offer people. So <laughs> yeah. that's that's appreciated. Um, it's interesting though.
1: It's so interesting listening to you because listening to you on not Dunphy this week as well, and it's just mm. it like the the it's scary, but it, it's just fascinating and interesting. Like mm. you know the way you you, you reference the the Geneva Convention and stuff like that. Like why bother have these conventions if war leaders are just gonna be so like they're gonna be megalomaniacs to, to to ruin people's lives and to kill people just for for what? There's no there's no real reason, like other than their ego.
2: I mean, this is history repeating itself. Like we, we had Hitler did this, we've seen other people do it, like you've got Kim Jong-un or
0: yeah, yeah, it's him. Yeah, it Kim Jong-un like, the that. There there
2: is, there is, there is a, an antidote to all of this. There is a, a radical proposal put forward by feminists that women should take over.
0: Hmm.
2: And not in a patriarchal way, not like Margaret Thatcher, you know, who collaborated with an extended patriarchal discourses, but that women and girls should take over the world and do it let's let's try it that way and see if that's less violent and if that's less Harmful to the planet and harmful to one another. We've had patriarchal systems and people, and Putin, like Trump, is the very, very expression of patriarchal values. Absolutely. It's no good.
1: It's, no, it's I agree but, with you, by the way.
0: I yeah, tox- yeah to- toxic masculinity has a lot to answer for, you know. And yeah. um, it's something that we, we, we've talked about in this podcast. We've heard at plenty of other places as well that more female representation in politics and more f- female representation at the top tables. It can't be yeah. a bad thing. You know, diverse, get them, get diversity of thought
2: helps. Get them back into the schools in Afghanistan, you know, and... Yeah. Absolutely. Empower, empower women and girls all around the world and, you know, we'll, that'll be a good first step towards preventing this type of thing from happening again.
1: Let the Irish mammy rule the world. Absolutely, yeah.
2: Just, there'll be wooden <laughs> spoon
0: clatters everywhere. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. anyway, um, um, so, Thanks very much. Thank you very really much, know. Tom. Thanks all, so much. All the best for the Shan elections, Tom. Yeah. And thanks again for all the work Thank as well around raising awareness. Really, really great stuff.
2: Thank you, Graham. Thanks, Danny. We'll see you soon.
0: Man, it is, like, <laughs> scary, but, like, I don't want the fear monger, but, like, that that possibility of us going over a cliff edge into a territory nobody wants to is, is you can't ignore it, can you? No.
1: And, I like, yeah. And it's trying It's it's hard to get your head around why this is happening, you know, it's hard, it's hard to, um, fathom why diplomacy didn't work here.
0: Um, you know, he, did, he didn't want diplomacy though. I, th- I think Tom touched on it. He wants, he basically wanted Zelensky dead, you know, and I think now, and me and you talked about this separately where I'm not necessarily buying into this, uh, I think there's a massive cult of personality around Putin and that's a whole different thing. But this, this kind of surge in zelensky the what i i don't know enough about the guy and he he may be all things sweet and innocent he may be all things wholesome or whatever but but i think now putin has to know if he kills zelensky it it's a completely different thing than if he had killed zelensky in the first two days of this onslaught
1: yeah yeah so like would he have let's say right just, I'm just wondering, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as as experts like Tom uh, had suggested that you know Putin thought this was going to be well over with it, certainly within ten days. Yeah. Um. So, were the orders, were the original orders when you get the the Kiev um kill Zelensky like?
0: Well, I I don't know. I I, I mean, we should we should definitely sort of just caveat here. We should just definitely say the expert is gone now. So yeah, every, every, everything you're we are experts. Everything I hear and now is just the opinion of two very, very, very silly men from Ballybrack Who <laughs> let's be honest, we, we still laugh at farts, Graham. <laughs> you know, so uh, like when it comes to these international geopolitical matters, you know, if, if if there was footage of Vladimir Putin farting, I'd be laughing watching it. So mm-hmm. I'm probably not the best person. To, but nonetheless, uh, we'll go ahead with the conversation anyway. I don't know, I th- honestly don't know if if kind of I wouldn't be surprised if there were orders of take Kiev, take Zelensky, and because you have to remember the whole thing was sold by Putin to the Russian people and everything else on the denazification of Ukraine, that Ukraine was being ruled by Nazis and drug addicts. So, and, do, drug addicts. so, so hmm. do you
1: think, do you think Putin thought that what the start of this invasion? that that we were going to see scenes of Ukrainians uh, jubilant in the streets that they are no longer oppressed.
0: Absolutely. So this, you can learn a lot from history. And Tom Clonin, the actual expert, who's no longer with us, I'll just repeat that again. He's uh, still he, alive and well. He is know. still alive. <laughs> yeah, sorry. yeah, when I say no longer with us, I mean on this <laughs> podcast, not in this earth. This is a... Uh, but you... History often does repeat itself and you can learn a lot from it, right? And there was there was the, the, the Soviet uh, war with Finland in 1939 and 1940 has a lot of similarities to what we're seeing now in that uh, the Soviet leadership were fully, fully of the belief that they would roll over the border into Finland and be greeted with women throwing knickers at them that they'd be greeted in the streets as heroes, there'd be trumpets and marching bands in front of them saying, welcome in, let's go to Helsinki, we're so happy you're here to save us from our despot dictators that we have. The reality was the complete opposite. And the Russians couldn't believe, or the Soviets as was couldn't believe the resistance. And Finland only has a population like 5 million, bear in mind, it's nowhere near the size of Ukraine and all that kind of stuff. And after three months of Russians getting bogged down, Soviets I should say, sorry, getting bogged down in Finnish forests, making absolutely fucking all progress, getting battered by Finnish guerrilla war tactics and all sorts of things. Eventually, a Moscow peace treaty was signed because the Russians realized we're too far down a one-way street to reverse. We can't get to the far end of the street like we want to. This isn't going to happen. So it was a little bit humiliating for them, but they saved face. But, but, like...
1: This is the same case, though, because he went all like the the language that's being used here, you know, even even from the Americans and even Boris Johnson, like Mm. they were like Boris Johnson probably would have thought, you know, oh, yeah, I've got a friendly relationship with Putin. And then two, three days into this war, into this invasion, um, you have Boris Johnson calling uh, Putin a dictator
0: a war like, criminal Yeah Yeah and, and they never just, Would
1: have called them That anymore So no. where is the way back Like if If you were to host A, a neutral treaty Like h- who would be The people involved Who would be The countries involved Well th- like, this is th- This how do is the you, How do we see The US administration In the future The UK administration In the future How do we see The superpowers So called superpowers Of the world Realign with Moscow now
0: Well th- this is it And this is the thing uh, uh, And I, I <sighs> Superpowers are essentially counterweights against each other. And they're a bit like supermassive stars. They will eventually implode upon themselves. Mm. So we're, we're already at that. The two brightest stars in our galaxy are dying. The age of the American empire is on its way out. And Russia, which looked like a big bright star in terms of its capabilities, and its, turns out it's not actually as big as we thought it was. And more than likely, when it goes, it's going to go with a whimper rather than a bang in terms of that implosion. It's a massive, massive state. And like the difference between society in Western Russia, in your kind of Moscow's, your St. Petersburgs, down into your kind of uh, Black Sea resorts like Sochi, over then across the Oral Mountains towards Rostov on Don and Omsk and, you know, uh, the Novgorod and all these kind of big cities. The further east you go and the further into that kind of Siberian forest and that Siberian tundra you get over towards the Asian continent, it becomes a completely different way of life, completely different culture. There are people, if you remember, like on one side of Russia, you've got Moscow and the other side of it, there are cities that are closer to Alaska and Anchorage in Alaska than they are to another Russian city. So this is, it's such a vast place that you've got just mad, mad, mad variants in terms of views and politics and society and culture and
1: yeah, so so style. sorry not to be rude, but what, what is the point that you're making with that?
0: My, my point is that realistically, these superpowers they can't last forever. So when Russia goes, I and this is purely just my opinion based on kind of like you know the, the bits that I read and sort of knowledge.
1: Yeah, but you're an intelligent it. man, so you're allowed to have an opinion like that. We're playing
0: fast and loose with the term intelligent. What I'm saying to you is I think. There's a real possibility that in 20 years' time, the Russian Federation as it is today does not exist as it is today. And what you will get are a series of caucuses and republics. So you've already got semi-republics within Russia. And, and
1: is that as a result of people fed up with Putinism?
0: Yeah, and the, the, the inability of the Kremlin to actually impact and affect outcome across the vastness of the Russian Federation. Yes. Man. so I, 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 I think like a lot of people sort of say the world is looking for the East. They're looking at China. They're looking at India uh, and Japan to an extent in terms of the rise of the next superpowers. I don't know enough about that. I don't know how true that is, but yeah. what I do think is America doesn't have the influence it wants to us, and it's not seen the way. It and Trump has done a lot of damage on that, but it was probably already in the twilight years. Yeah.
1: I so, think Afghanistan and Iraq probably
0: had something to do with that. Quite possible. quite possibly. And I think Russia Putin doing, in fairness, like you have to remember, there's been sort of thirty years of Russia removing that Soviet label to try and integrate towards Western ways and to try exactly. and. You know, like you've got, you uh, up until the, the early 90s, 90s, you didn't have things like McDonald's in the Soviet Union. You didn't have Levi jeans and Western music and Western cinema and all that kind of thing. You, the, if you wanted that stuff, it was illegal to have it and you had to have bootleg copies of it and all that kind okay. of stuff. And that's why disco music to this day is so popular in Russia, because the bootlegs that went over were things like Boney M and stuff like that. <laughs> so this Western culture and all this effort that went to integrating it and Let's not forget When oligarchs get their money They're not buying Fucking ladders They're buying Porsches They're buying Mercedes They're buying Audis They don't want to regress back Towards an eastern way of life where Why aren't the talking.
1: oligarchs Putting pressure on Putin now?
0: With the <sighs> It's a great question It's a great question Because a lot of them are fucking now Pretty much flat broke
1: Yeah You know So did they not have that much power Over Putin that they thought they had? I
0: <sighs> I would or
1: is
0: say it just Putin just literally going on a solo run here. I don't know if he's going on a solo run. I'd say there's a lot of oligarchs. Yes, t- I'd, I'd say there's a few WhatsApp groups with a couple of oligarchs, and there's a lot of WTF meat going on, you know. <laughs> but what, what, like what, ultimately, what are they going to do? Because the thing, sang- even even if, let's just say Putin drops dead tomorrow. Yeah, right. The sanctions aren't going to be lifted. They're not going to have access to their money straight away. So they don't have access to their power straight away. So who? Their money is in their power. If they were able to corrupt and bribe somebody to be able to do something here, they'd be relying on the assets that are frozen and that they cannot touch right now because of international sanctions. So they're a little bit toothless. They're a big bad dragon that has no teeth and can't breathe fire. Right.
1: So it's. That's that. that They they are the ramblings of two amateur history buffs. If you want to follow more, you should follow Tom Clonan on his Twitter page. At Tom Clonan C-L-O-N-A-N And uh, he's been writing extensively In journal.ie, R-T-E He's has been on Eamon Dunphy's podcast he's, he's been everywhere um And everywhere and anywhere Since this invasion Happened
0: um Anyway Danny, where can anyone listen to us? uh They can get us pretty much anywhere And everywhere you can get a podcast Brian. That includes Spotify, it includes Apple Podcasts Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast Addict Podcast Republic Literally anywhere lads You can get You can make Alexa play us If you want to Have a chat with Alexa ask, us, ask her for us And we'll pop up Talking to you Through your little magic box That appears um, All you have to do is Search WTS pod There we are Me
1: he's, and at little, Dandro, he's at Danjo He's at Danjo Murray I'm at Merrigan Mania We have a couple of podcasts Lined up over the next Three to four weeks So we'll few, see few, you next week
0: few doozies A few, a few, doozies, doozies, a few on.
1: doozies Once the, I was going to say Once the customer Once the guest Does not pull out Um, But anyway, Lenny, until next time. Clear noise. Full heart. Parrot Lou. Ooh, sweet.